well. Hello. Yeah. Hello. So I, I thought I would do, I, I, things have been very um, kind of uh, relaxed and free flow, but I thought I would read uh, a little bio bit that I found of yours online, and then you can Sweet. fill in any gaps that you want to add. Um, and then we can start, just so people tuning in have a sense of you before we get started. Okay. So this is from the ISTA website, and it's a really short, concise piece, and I wanted you to add anything you wanted, but at the bottom here it says, Philippe is a relationship educator. He works with men and women to support them in making better choices for themselves and each other so they can become fully sovereign human beings through the practice of connection, trust, intimacy, love, and consent. He is also the happy father of a seven-year-old boy who teaches him how to surrender to love a little bit more each day. So, yeah, that's a nice, concise little starting point. And uh, is there anything else you want to add about, you know, who you are and what you're about? Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, I, one, <clears throat> one piece that the bio doesn't say, and it's something that's been coming into me uh, recently, is what excites me about about this work is that I enjoy making sense of what seems to be the chaos of our relating. <clears throat> like I feel that as human beings, we're massively or infinitely complex machines, if you want to look at it that way. I mean, we're not machines, but biologically, that's what we are. And that's what I tried to do uh, you know, with my puny little brain. I, I try to make sense of the chaos that is us. Or that is our ways or that, that the way that we behave together, um, either in relation in relationship or with, or with ourselves or in community. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's actually, so you cut out a couple of times there. So let's just keep track of the technology and hopefully um, we'll, we'll roll with it and make it work. Uh, but okay. I got the gist and, and what you introduced there is, is interesting because for me, as I've looked at my work with people and in particular, it's around communication and relationship. I noticed there are, kind of three primary domains of relationship. So there's this inner space, that's like our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with, with, with anything that is there, present, arising in us. I call that the intrapersonal space. And then there's the interpersonal space between us and another or others. And then there's what I call the superpersonal space. So this is like the space of, of community, the space of society. And that communication is happening on all of these levels. And the way I see it is communication is happening most authentically from the inside out. And so that if, if we're taking care of this inner space, that flows beautifully into our interpersonal space and, and then so on into the superpersonal space. And I think too often, especially in Western culture, we're looking kind of to work from the outside in. And we run into all sorts of difficulties by way of that. Um, often I think in a, in a way to bypass because to, to, to move from the inside out means we have to be responsible for what's inside first. And mm -hmm. um, that's the double-edged sword is that that's really where it all happens and where it all starts from. And it's also uh, where it's, it's most raw for us, where it's most vulnerable and, and often painful as we work with our own pieces. Mm, yeah. And I think that's, I, I fully agree with you about the responsibility piece. And I think this culture uh, actually, I'm not sure. I think Canada is a little bit less of an issue, as a little bit less of an issue with this. But I think people, uh, in in a great way, fail to realize that responsibility actually is an access to power, uh, and they 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 want to relinquish responsibility, give it to somebody else, 
And I think maybe that's a, that's a throwback to when we were young or when we were children or even babies where we didn't have responsibility. And then it was sort of <clears throat> slowly or abruptly, uh, whether it was through trauma or through, you know, parents leaving or, you know, many things happening where we had to take over, where we had to find the resources inside. But sometimes finding these resources was so traumatic that we're still integrating what it looks like to actually be fully in our power. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to me, that looks like in general, to be in power usually looks like taking responsibility for, you know, starting with our reactions or our experience, but then kind of trying to move forward, move further away from just our own experience and also become more responsible for other people's experience to the degree that we can and to the degree that they consent to. And to me, that's the, that, that's the basis for how I perceive sovereignty. I see a lot of people thinking of sovereignty about, about being just the self. And for me, I've upgraded that to being, uh, making better choices to, for self and each other in connection, in relationship. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I have this, uh, idea or philosophy that responsibility is directly linked to our level of awareness Ah. as as awareness expands and deepens for us we naturally rightly become responsible for more and then it's one of the reasons people might willfully avoid deeper awareness because on some level we know that we know that the more we become aware of the more we're holding the more we're right rightfully supposed to hold and and navigate yeah we, we have all this kind of and it's the ambivalence, it's the split. Like part of us wants that responsibility. We want the sovereignty. We want the real essence of, of life and, and all of the joy and beauty and love and pain that comes with that. And then, but a, a part of us doesn't. A part of us recognizes the cost involved, which is a, a life where we're much more at our edges, where we're much less comfortable. Um, so yeah, I, I liked what you started with, which is how do we make sense of what appears to be so complex and chaotic and yet for me, as I've made my way, as I learn and grow into my life, things really do make sense. <laughs> it's actually not as chaotic and, and nonsensical as it may seem. And we need to come into these deeper levels of awareness to start to connect the dots mm-hmm. so that we look at the world, we look at ourselves, we look at behavior, we look at our relationships and we go, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, like that makes sense. Which, which is interesting because um, and my, that one of my latest uh, bits of understanding is that even if, it, if I don't understand it, it still makes sense. And I may not have all the bits and pieces uh, to, to fit what's ha- what my perception of what's happening um, into the model that I'm, oper- that I'm using to operate in the world. And it still makes sense. I just don't know how. So, and, and, and this is most, uh, this shows up most uh, strikingly when we're in conflict with others. Because mm-hmm. when we're in conflict, we have this idea of why they're in conflict with us and why they're, they're wrong for the way they are, for the way they are. But if you've ever done any kind of mediation with anyone where you get to be in a process of deeper understanding of what's going on for them and what's going on for you without the, without the, uh, without the, uh, the back and forth of blame, then you begin to understand more deeply where, where they're operating from and you get to, you get to have forgiveness mm-hmm. sort of, or compassion, if nothing else, but what was going on for them that had them behave the way they did. And mm-hmm. that leads to understanding. But even, even without that, we can start with, 
all right, this is all according to plan. This is all part for the course. I just don't necessarily know how yet. Yeah, and the beauty of that is, I think it does two things. It allows us to relax into the, the truth of what is. So yeah, we're not starting from a place of being at odds with what's real. Um, but it also, it allows us to relax our system a little bit. You know, if, we, if we think we need to understand to relax, we're going to constantly be in a state of stress response to life. Whereas even if we don't understand, but we know that there's an underlying intelligence, mm -hmm. it all really does work. It all really does make sense. It's all working to, to, to integrate itself. Like I, I really believe that living systems are built to integrate themselves when things get thrown out of balance. They're always, there's sort of a, a gravitational pull of the intelligence of life, bringing it all back together. And we can get in sync with that or we can, fight it and be again in stress uh, almost all the time yeah and it's interesting because even as you speak you're operating from a particular model that makes sense to you so you're using your own model that makes sense to you to make sense of the world or to make sense of you not being able to make sense of it yet <laughs> sure sure but that's a feedback loop right like that that kind of is is, is a, a never-ending cycle of of recognizing that there's a there's a lens and a framework yeah. underlying that in spite of whatever the lens and framework is, there is a, a true nature yeah. so to speak. And, and yeah. that, I mean, that, that does so much for us in terms yeah. of just allowing us to maintain perspective. Like you talked about conflict. I read this quote recently. I can't remember who it was, but they were essentially talking about um, political conflict and they were mm -hmm. saying, you know, political conflict doesn't unfold as a right against wrong. It unfolds as a right against another right. So like right. each side, each <laughs> position is saying I'm right and they believe it. And in some context, they're right, but there's no room for, for, for the resolution of that conflict if they hold those positions. Well, this is, uh, this, is, this is the classic situation where two moral frameworks are fighting for supremacy. Like we, you know, when we hear supremacy, most people think white supremacy, but there's, there's left supremacy, there's right supremacy, there's, there's just whoever shows up in the field and says, I'm right, and everybody else cannot be as right as I am. Mm -hmm. And this leads to holy wars. I, and it's interesting, I was having this, this conversation, well, I don't know if it was a conversation with the, but it was, a, it was a little bit of a, a, of a tussle of some sort with Jeff Brown, who a lot of people know. And he's coming into the field where saying, you know, saying, you know, this is what I think is true. And, and he believes it. And at some point in the conversation, he mentions there's a holy war about, around truth. And I'm like, well, if you're coming into the holy war thinking that you're right, then that's just more of the holy war that we've seen in history. You're just saying that your version of your moral framework is better than everybody else's and the casualties surrounding that is okay. Well, that's happened so many times before. And if we if, if we want to come up with something even better, then we have to come up with a sort of a combined hybrid solution that hopefully or ostensibly can lead to, uh, can lead to a, a third solution that we haven't even figured out yet. But yeah. we know it's there. Totally. It has to be there. I mean, to me, it has to be there. But I, I think the, 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 the solution that I see is is again, not an upgrade in moral framework. No. Right? No. It, but it, it's, it's something like, if the moral framework is the what of that conversation, 
underlying the what, there's a why and a how. Yeah. And I think the why and the how are it. That's really where it all happens. And the deeper understanding. The framework that's free to arise from a, a true why and how of how we are inside, of how we are with each other, of how societal kind of frameworks and, and mechanisms play out. Then, yep. then what arises as what we might call a moral framework is, is the, the flowering of something that's more deeply real and true. Absolutely. The tricky, piece, the tricky piece is that there's often multiple truths that are concurrently true, and, and each moral framework has a piece of that truth. Yes. And so it, it's tricky for, for, for one moral frame, for somebody holding one moral framework to say, well, your truth is as true or, or, uh, or it's as valid as mine. And now if you put them together, they seem like they're conflicting. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to hold more than one moral framework at any one time or to hold multiple truths at any one time and allow for the flowering that you speak of. That, yeah. That's massively difficult. And it, it speaks to a level of psychological development that actually most people don't have. Sure, sure. And I also think that, that like the, I talk a lot about false dichotomy, like how, how our minds naturally want to simplify that's and right. value to that simplification. I need to know the difference between walking on the sidewalk and walking on the road. Like I need to be able to differentiate, but, but the world on a deeper level is not diametric in that way. It's not, you know, it's not all ones and zeros that yeah. there, there is nuance, there's gradient, there's texture. And, yeah. and I think part of a mature psyche is the ability to hold these nuances simultaneously, even if they disagree with, a more kind of, um, you know, this versus that uh, lens or, or perspective. And, and that, I, I see why it doesn't feel good because it pulls the rug of security out from under us. If I yeah. can say this is right and that is wrong, I feel secure in being clear. It's like, yeah. if I know there's good people in the world and evil people in the world, and that's the end of the story, it's way yeah. easier for me to make my way in my day. But if I actually have to face that in, inside of each person, both exist, and that all of this complexity and all these choices and nuances about what shows up as what I might call good or evil on the surface is all playing out underneath, I don't get to feel so secure. And so that's a challenge that we face of to see more objectively, we have to feel less secure than maybe we want to. Well, it's tricky too, because I mean, that's a, uh, it's tricky because if we're if we want to make good choices in our day and and we hold multiple truths that prevent us from making good choices quickly and simply then where is the you know how, how do we manage on one hand being you know wanting to be able to make good choices without always kind of weighing the pros and cons or what or however you get to make your choices versus the times where it's actually a good idea to hold multiple multiple truths because there isn't an immediacy uh required in making those choices like uh, like planning ahead or or including everyone like a consensus process is a little bit of that and i don't know if you know morehouse but they they've got this when they're, they're like a communal like a intentional community and they have a a a, a veto clause so the veto clause goes like this. If somebody puts any proposal and starts working on it and everybody's like thinking about it, if at any point 
if, if my understanding is correct, if at any point one person, it could be a, it could be a child, it could be anyone in the community, says, "I don't want it," the whole thing is scrapped. And that's an interesting concept, right? How do you include everyone so that nobody suddenly shows up and says, "No, I don't want that anymore." Mm -hmm. And so that requires a that requires a lot of slowness and a lot of in, um, I would say, a lot of intimacy. Yeah. like a lot of deep connection to actually really feel into everyone so that everyone gets their say. Yeah. yeah and I'm not, I'm not convinced of that as the, 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 the best way there's for sure pros to that. Whereas yeah. this more kind of totalitarian authoritarian hierarchical approach to decision-making and community development and societal kind of uh, function. Um, yeah. But, but some people do know better, you know, like what do we do when someone really knows better and and they have power and and someone disagrees i think yeah. we're not we're not well equipped to navigate a lot of that um I'm, you know there's that saying i'm sure you've heard it that the the best governmental structure is a benevolent dictatorship right? yeah which i don't like i like it i don't fully agree i think there's lots of kind of nuances <laughs> to address in that statement because it's so simplified but but on some level it's the recognition that within a society and within a relationship sometimes someone knows better than someone else and, and within that relationship or society are people willing to step down from holding control to allow who actually knows better to lead and, and mm. like that, that that idea of leading and leadership uh, you know it's so fraught with corruption and mis misuse of power but it's not inherently that that's what we've done with it i think there there is a place for hierarchy there is a place for people who, who have expertise and leadership and, and it belongs for them to make certain decisions that other people are just not equipped to make. And so yeah. how do we, again, as a society or within a relationship, you know, dance that in a way that, you know, you talked about this thing that I loved, which was the locus of control in an interaction yeah. that, at the festival that we met at. Um, and I love that concept is, are we tuned in enough and, and, and um, willing to be, uh, vulnerable enough to give over our own sense of control to the rightful locus of control within an interaction. And maybe you could talk a little bit more about that because I think it's a really valuable concept. Well, it's, it's, it, 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 the, the, the thing is the locus of control could be, could be, you know, with one person, especially when you're, you know, for example, you have a parent and a child, right? There, and now, and that nowadays there's much more accent put on uh, uh, the consent of the child. But in some cases, for things like about danger, uh, often, at least in my, in my family with my son, you know, I get to say what's dangerous and what's not because you don't have the experience to know what's dangerous. Now, when it comes to physical touch, we've, I, I, as soon as he was able to say yes or no or express it in some way, we've always asked him, you know, would you like to be picked up? Do you want to be tickled? Do you want to kiss? And so... On, uh, in, terms of, in terms of danger and physical, physical harm, locus of power is with me. But in terms of physical touch and kisses and things like that, the locus of power is way towards him, mm -hmm. right? We, we, allow, I, I, we allow that because we want him to be autonomous with his body. So depending on the interaction or depending even on the topic of the interaction, then the locus of power can move. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, as a child, I could, I could decide everything. but Part of, a lot of, part of supporting people and being in their power is you want to relinquish power so they have more of it. 
And so, so I see a little bit, a little bit like physical balance when you're, if you're balancing on each other and he's really small. And so I could just, you know, if I was to use 50, you know, if, if I was to balance the same way he does, I would just pull him in yeah. because I have control physically or same thing for when we're wrestling, you know, I could, I could win every time, but I relinquish power to support him in learning how to use that power and let him win or let him actually have more of that balance by by giving away some of it like physically that's relatively easy but emotionally and um emotionally it gets a little bit trickier because it's not always obvious who's got the power now in 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 a society there's there, there i and i see this push for for essentially showing that men men have i don't want to go into a whole men women thing but there's definitely a push towards saying that men are more responsible for X, Y, and Z. Well, to me, that sounds like you're telling men that, they're, that, that they have more power. And, 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 how, and how do you engage with somebody who feels that this is true versus somebody who feels like this is not? So when I'm engaging with a woman, she might feel like men have more power or, more, uh, or men, men are more harmful. And as a result, I have to relinquish my power in order to to support, to move the locals apart towards, towards her. So it's somewhere in between us. Uh, but depending on how much I perceive and how much she expresses, I may not do that enough. I may think that she has more power than she does and expect her to be sovereign in her choices and her no or yes. And she might actually be trying to please me. And that's not going to go well eventually. I will have a perception that the locus of power is, in between, is exactly in between us, but she'll have a perception of, uh, that the power is on my, it's further closer on my side, and that will cause conflict. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I love this, and I'm happy to jam on this for a little bit because I think it's, yep. so, it's so central to our relating, and not just between men and women, but this idea of we come in with our perception of where the power s- sits, and that perception is a varying degrees of objective. For some people, it's wildly distorted. They have really a limited ability to perceive the real locus of control or power. Other people might have a really f- fine-tuned sense, even though there's still subjectivity there. And, and we're making our choices based on our sense of where that locus of power sits. And That's that right. it's a moving target. That, that yeah. not only between oh. relationships, but even within yeah. the same relationship as time passes or in different environments, that locus of control or power changes. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's not about some objective truth about where it sits. It's about a, a presence and an, an availability, a responsiveness to what we're really tuning into around what that, like, what is that? Even that's a question that, that I think would be interesting to explore. What, what, what does it really mean, a locus of control or power within an interaction? Um, like, I just, I'll share whatever comes to me. I don't even have an idea formulated yet, but but to me, it's, it's, it's knowing that there's these multi-levels of relationship occurring, right? There's the physical domain, there's the intellectual domain, the, the emotional domain, there's Primal, social. You know, desire, there's um, you know, socially constructed power dynamics that are playing out in our nervous system. There's our own sense of safety and security. Uh, you know, like all of these things are playing, like the complexity you talked about at the beginning, and yet the system is built to work like the, the interpersonal space of human interaction is, is so beautifully built. And so if I trust that and I take my hands off, then the, the locus of control or power is almost like a, a deeper balance that is there. 
that may or may not be aligned with my conditioned sense of what's occurring and my wow. perception through that of what's occurring. And can I, can I relax my hold of identity and my sense of things and my sense of having control to tune into that deeper balance that really is there and that is meant to inform how I navigate on the surface. Oh God, I love your mind. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> you like said it better than I could have said it. Um, I also, I want to add something to that. I think um, I, I do relate to what you speak in terms of the deeper balance. And I think if we, if you, if we relax all the things that would make this balance more rigid and allow it to be more fluid, then we get to feel the pushes and pulls of that, the, the, the way this balance shifts between us and another person. And as we feel that, we get to learn how, it, how the balance shifts and moves. And it's, I would say it's exactly the same thing as when, we, as, when, as when you're doing contact improv with someone. There's a sense of physical balance. Of course, we've been learning physical balance since we were one or even earlier than that. Uh, and so, and so, it's, so physical balance is easy. It's visible. It's, ex, it's expressed in the physical world. Our eyes are really, our eyes and body are really good at noticing it. Um, I, I, I think the primary source of, bal of, of, of the balance of power between us is, is around emotional, emotional balance. Is how are we engaging emotionally with this person? Uh, I, I think all the other ways are also relevant, but I think the biggest one is the emotional is the emotional balance, and all the other one, all the other ones are present too. Mm -hmm. And so, if I'm engaging with a woman or, or another person, I'm attracted to this person. Then the locus of power is, moves towards them. If they think I'm in a position of power, the locus of power moves towards me. But effectively, it's just my perception of what the locus of power versus their perception, and they sort of balance out somewhere in between so there's no objective sense of power or a sense of balance or locus of power there's just my subjective versus their subjective and how well they interact with each other there's really two because there's because there's our subjective experience and the more we share and the more we communicate and the more we connect essentially however that looks whether we connect physically or, or verbally or, or, um, or in other ways, if there's, if there's an energetically, some people would say that's a way. Uh, the more we do that, the more we feel into our and theirs and, sort and, and, and manage to navigate all of this as one, as one deeper sense of balance as you spoke. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, would, I would suggest that there, and this may be a dimensional thing. This is, I don't want to get too conceptual, but, um, there's the, the, the subjective piece on each side. There's how those subjective pieces mingle and interact. And there is, I'll call it a field. There's a field within which the, all of the information and energy of those, of those sides and how they dance, that's holding it. And, and, and on the level of the field, the, the idea of your subjective experience and my subjective experience disappears. It's yep. all one system of information. And, and I love that you use contact improvisation because for me, a, a couple of years ago, I fell in love with the form. And, and the, the, what really fired me up about it was I had an experience. I had already done it a few times, but this was the first time I really had a sense of what it means for two nervous systems to move as one. 
Mm. That was the experience I had is like the idea of distinction between you moving as an individual and me moving as an individual disappeared. And then maybe lovemaking is the, the, the most sort of recognized example where when a sense of you and me disappears and we're in a movement together that is a kind of oneness experience. Mm. That in a real way, this field that I'm talking about, it, it represents that. And, and if we're willing to, to dance gracefully, we get to experience that on the surface in spite of there being this contrast and this sense of there's a body over there and a body over here. But, but on a deeper level, that, that actually doesn't make sense. There's yeah. just life moving. And so that's, that's maybe tough for some people to get, but in a way we've, we've all had it. We've all had a flow experience and we've <laughs> all had a sense of being with someone where our sense of self evaporates or, or dissolves and we're just life moving. And, and mm. I think in that experience, there's some kind of key to how we can navigate all of the difficulties and, and the senses of disconnection on the surface. And it requires um, a different way of being. Uh, in it all. Mm. Hang on, I'm gonna plug like my computer, something I forgot to do just before we get started. Um, I was just reminded of, of, this, um, of this thing that uh, my friend Bell posted uh, recently about function, flow, and glow. So function, function is about, you know, whether, whether, whether or not something works and that you can relate that to how functional you're in your life, uh, you know, making money, doing, you know, making food, uh, making your day and your calendar, putting your day in the calendar, things like that. But then flow is how well you move essentially with reality, how well you flow with reality. And I think that can be said too uh, about somebody else. But then the next level, which I think is really interesting is glow, which is sort of like a deeper sense of being. And I think flow, flow is one level, but I think beyond flow, uh, glow is just sort of a way of being that just uh, that, that where everything that arises is perfect the way it is. And so in that sense, everything is everything is flow, even the things that look chaotic and not working. And you could see. And, and so in that sense, it might be possible to see that even when things are not in flow, they are actually in flow. And that's the deeper sense of understanding that, uh, you know, the, that, that allows us to say, OK, I can't see the sense of it. It doesn't make sense you know, hardship, trauma, abuse, name it, challenging experiences. And without bypassing, without saying at a personal level, it's fine. Without saying that, uh, that, that it is, that, that it is actually flow, you can still experience something, something that's challenging and difficult without making sense of it and experiencing it as its own form of flow. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's like um, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's hard to get that, especially when the difficulty is present in our experience. And yet, um, on a certain level, it's the only way to move from what feels like chaos and pain and disconnection uh, into something that, that, that has more of the experience of flow. That has, it's, like, yeah. it's like the chicken and the egg. We usually want the circumstance to change or be different or better so that yeah. then we can feel in flow with life but it's not really how it works. It's like we have an orientation in relation to life. It's either, uh, this is how I talk about it to, to kind of simplify. I think about, I can either be a yes in relationship to life or I can be a no in relationship to life. And <laughs> either way, life is life. But inside of me, I get to choose. 
Mm-hmm. And, and if I'm a no in relationship to life, and then everything lines up for me and it goes just the way I want, in a way, I won't accept it. Ha, yes. It's not my orientation. And then, then, yeah. we, then we get to see how we actually hold together the very things we wished weren't there, or at least that we say we wished weren't there. Because mm-hmm. the struggle, the sense of disconnection, the sense of separation, the sense that life isn't fair, the sense that life isn't meaningful, if we've integrated that into our identity, then, then we need it. We need yeah. life to show up that way and we'll fight against it coming apart. We'll fight against things getting better even. And I'm sure you've worked with people, you see them do that. You see them dig in their heels against what is clearly good because the, the reality is, is that as they go down that path of transformation, it's the end of that identity for them. Yeah, um, I mean, I've done that. Sure. I, I've done that many times. Uh, um, when I went to India in 2008, I went to see this this um, really quirky um, Zen master, which apparently is not a Zen master, um, named Delano, and she's quirky German woman with a weird accent. And um, anyway, <laughs> just do a picture. Uh, and one of the things she said in this five week long satsang called the last satsang, which is about basically completing your spiritual journey. She says, enlightenment is not an experience. You can have experiences of enlightenment, but it's, enlightenment is not an experience. It's not, it's no longer coupled with experiences or circumstances. Enlightenment is when you just know, you just know, you just know your essence and you know, you know it exper- uh, sort of expanding or glowing, back to glowing. And, and it's no longer about whether or not you like what's happening around you. It's just about being alive and experiencing it. And it's like, it's so common and ordinary that it, it can, kind of flies under the radar. And I think part of taking responsibility for self, back to responsibility, is that, is that you can't choose that. You can't say yes to reality. You can, because reality is not consensual. Your reality is coming at you regardless of whatever the fuck you say about it. And, and you can hide from it, but you can't, you can't really. And so either you say yes or you're saying no. But, but, and when you start saying yes, you start to just experience rolling with it, which is a form of flow. But beyond that, it's basically whatever happens is just according to plan. Yeah. And you don't even need to think of it. It's just you just live as such. And, you're, you're, and that way of being creates creates the life that happens and and then you just you just move with it until you don't yeah yeah and and what i see in that is that that choice to switch yes on in relation to life in a way it it activates it somehow activates our human system where it's in full operation that Mm. that kind of no in relationship to life kind of shuts down certain capacities and functionality in our system Um, you know, the idea of everything psychological is biological and that, and that somehow it appears as though there is a way to intervene in that relationship between biology and psychology that changes our biology, that, that all of the research around meditation and and mindfulness practices change the biology of, 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 of the nervous system of the brain of, of the whole, you know, pharmacology of our body. And of course that leads to a change in psychology and, and, scientists have trouble with making sense of that and and so they want to make it mechanistic but but for me there's there's an intervention that is not mechanistic it's about 
how we as con consciously aware sort of beings, this sort of level of conscious awareness that isn't really a, a form, it's not an emergent property of our biology. Mm. That is somehow in relationship with biology in a way that is able to change it. And then uh, a guy, Daniel Siegel, that I love and, and talk about often, he talks about that dimension, like it's dimensionally different than the physical world, but that dimension he calls the plane of possibility where we can shift our quality of consciousness in a way that completely changes how our body functions and how the psychology unfolds. Mm. So uh, here's a question for you. What if, what if identification is, is, um, is, uh, I don't know if that's the right question. Um, what came up for me as you were speaking is that identification is something it, it's something that we know classically happens when trauma or when difficult circumstances happen. Like there, there's an aspect of us that gets created just to handle this particular situation. And often that part, that particular ident identity or aspect kind of sticks because it's based on a single situation, not, not a dynamically changing, ever evolving set of circumstances. It's set to handle a particular situation. And then we, we stick with it. But of course, as we, engage, as we engage with the world, as if everything, you know, everything needs a, is, a, is a nail that needs a hammer, we, we of course limit possibilities massively. Because we're no longer, we're, there's a part of us that just basically stays stuck. And so what I wonder is if all forms of identification are like that. Mm -hmm. They're meant to handle a particular situation, whether it's caused by trauma or abuse or, or challenging circumstances. It, it, it appears to be, to, to, to be about creating a role that limits us, that ultimately limits us from engaging with the world in an ultimately dynamic and fluid way. Yeah. And so that's what I'm wondering is if all forms of identification is like that. And, and, and part of this doing this work of whatever you call that enlightenment or growth is to actually shed these identities um, or at least remember the skills that they gave us and shed these identities so that we're massively fluid and, and flowing in, in our engagement with reality. Yeah. I mean, that's such an interesting, huge question. <laughs> and what comes to me is that it, it, it's, it's, again, this, can we see ourselves as multidimensional beings? Mm -hmm. Where there's there's the, the biology, the physical substance of what we are and the configuration of that substance that has all sorts of real world functionality based on the structure, the way it's mm -hmm. configured, the way the nervous system is configured, the way yeah. the, the biology, the way the, the chemicals and hormones in my system interact. So there's that. And then thinking about there's a way of being that I can choose in the midst of that physicality that changes how that unfolds. I think we will, if we think of identity as um, some emergent property of that configuration, we will always have identity. No yes. matter how we're holding life, no matter whether I'm a yes to life, soft, open, fluid, responsive, or rigid and closed and, and oppositional, some configuration will arise in my nervous system and it'll show up on the surface as something we might call identity. Mm. But, but what's the quality we're holding that identity with? Uh, is it yeah. free to move and change? Are we in relationship with it in a way that it is free to move and change? Yeah. Or are we 
invested in it staying the same or strengthening in some ways and weakening in others, when we hold a preference around how the nervous system and our, our personal configuration unfolds, now we've created what I would call like a, a, a static or rigid ego. Like a shell. Yeah. And it becomes harder and harder. Yeah. And it's just not functional. In a yes. real way, it's not functional. Like you say, we have these big experiences and then we try to create solutions for them. And, and we repeat the solution because on some level it works, right? Yeah. If I experience trauma and I close off, I feel less vulnerable. I, I, I may actually, in a real way, protect myself from, from feeling that kind of pain or vulnerability again. But the, the exact thing that makes me feel safer completely cuts me off from the full intimacy and connection involved in relationship. Yep. So, so there's, no, there's no way around that double-edged sword. If yep. we want to be in full relationship, we have to be vulnerable. There's just no other way. And so then there's the choice. There's the one of the fundamental human choices. It's like vulnerability or safety. We, which mm. one are you, like, what, what are you making your life about? And that's such a good question, I think, for all of us to just let in. Like, what am I doing? What are the choices I'm making? And is it about vulnerability and connection? Or is it about protection and safety? Mm. I think uh, uh, what came up for me as you were speaking uh, is the, the very kind of adaptiveness that, allow, that, that, can cre that can make us be rigid and stuck is the same kind of adaptiveness that can also make us fluid and, and, and open and dynamic. It's, it's, it's finding that balance between the two. So we're not stuck either being hypermobile or completely rigid. And that, that, sort of, that sort of balance, and, and the same is true for bodies, actually. I mean, I was, uh, when I had my car accident a couple of years ago, broke the three biggest bones in my body. And then as I'm doing physical therapy, my body's very rigid. Some of the muscles are atrophied already. There's movements that I can't make yet because I, you know, broke the hip socket. And, and as a result, all kinds of pains are showing up because my bones are, 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 are sort of rubbing against each other always the same way because my movement is reduced. And as I'm healing, I'm realizing Oh, when I'm walking around by uh, around my day, you know, uh, during my day, when if when I'm fully healed or when I'm fully healthy, there's ways that I can, uh, you know, my bones start rubbing a certain way, and there's a little bit of pain that arises. So I make a correction in how I walk so that pain doesn't happen, and then it starts to rub a different way, and there's a little bit of pain that arises, and I, I modify. I do this without thinking. And I think the same is true in, in how we act emotionally. Like we feel the discomfort and we make little adjustments here and there with ourselves and with other people. And, and that is adaptive. Yeah. It's, it's supposed to support us at a very primal, not a whole lot of thinking, very mammalian way in, in, in engaging better with reality and basically saying yes to reality. In, in, the best, in the best possible way that we can do primally, which is mostly what we do besides what we're thinking. But it's, it, what's interesting too is that the last layer of our brain, the neocortex, was evolved to be in service to the other layers. We think we're in charge, but we're really, the, our identities and all of that, that's just to make us even more adaptive. And it's actually highly probable that we're, that we're we're adapting ourselves out of existence 
because we're too adaptive and we can and we're so good at modifying our environment that we're going to kill our environment. Now we don't know that for a fact yet, but clearly we're modifying our environment towards a, to towards an end date unless we can actually course correct and be adaptive about our adaptiveness. Yeah. Yeah, which I mean, again, we can get confused with, with the, that kind of circular logic that feeds back on itself. But, but I think about when the neocortex, when our, our sense of self and our self-referencing and, and our, our, our sense of this being the center of the universe, uh, which is really sort of a, a consequence of our ability to self-reference, yep. uh, that is meant to integrate with all of these other levels of us. And right now, most of humanity isn't integrated. So yeah. that, to me, that's, the, that's the, the, the task at hand, is integrating the human nervous system in a way that allows us to be tuned into these deeper levels of intelligence that aren't mm -hmm. just about what's the best thing for me right now from a very narrow point of view. Like even the example that you used about your recovery from injury, there's also the aspect of, of physiotherapy and recovery where a lot of times what's most needed is for you to engage the edges of where it's painful and, and stuck for it mm -hmm. to, re, to, to, to reinvigorate, to, to create ranges of motion that are, that are complete. Whereas if yep. we stay away from that pain, if we mm -hmm. just go, okay, I can shift here and now I don't feel the pain anymore, that we're actually yeah. not giving the body what it needs. And I think also in the context of the psyche and emotional healing, if, we just, if our main uh, compass point is how do I avoid this discomfort, mm -hmm. we're in big trouble. And then the healing that's needed doesn't get what it needs to move and, and, and integrate what's been kind of thrown off. So yeah. that's, and that's a tough one, right? Because you can grind the hip in a way that's, that's um, gonna degrade the quality of the joint, the synovial fluid, everything that's going on in there. But there is a way to engage the hip that's uncomfortable and is right. And, and yeah. can learn to discern the difference between pain that's damaging and pain that's, that's Good pain. real healing. Yeah, and that's actually, you just named like one of the, as, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest, uh, uh, not paradox, but difficult uh, source of discernment. Uh, no, that's not the right way to put it. But the greatest thing, the greatest, most difficult thing to discern. What's, what, you know, it's like the, 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 the uh, Goldilocks principle. What's too little and what's too much and, and what's just right. And just right is a moving target. Just right when it comes to growth, when it comes to realization, when it comes to change, uh, when it comes to self-care, uh, there the, there is such a thing as too little, too much, and just and just right. And what's what's interesting, and I see that happening a lot in our society, is there's is and I and I suspect that's because our the world is not trying to kill us the way you, the reality is not trying to kill us the way it used to, uh, nearly as much you know like nature and 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 uh, you know, survival, we're not as much in survival, so we're becoming more fragile. And because we're becoming more fragile, we're more likely to say, oh, that hurts, I don't want that. And because we can not have that, we can get away from it, then there's not a whole lot of, of self-motivated incentive to actually engage with that. And it's, this is especially true if, if, uh, if we don't have self-responsibility for our own experience. And there you have, a uh, 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 call out culture and you have uh, people who get offended, offended of uh, offense culture where people are like, well, you should not offend me. But the very thing that creates the resilience 
and creates the healing and creates the development and the growth that we're speaking of, the just right will involve discomfort where offense actually does happen. Yeah, I, I, I did a bunch of stuff on resilience in the last few years and, and this concept, this piece that I wrote about, which was what creates resilience and what developed resilience feels like are the opposite. So it's like our willingness to engage in everything that, that has us feeling the least resilient and staying with it is, yep. and then it's like, this is how I think about it is like, there is a kind of code or intelligence embedded in our system that knows what to do. It's, it's like, I don't know how to develop muscle, but I can engage my muscles and my muscles know that that intelligence of how the capillary beds kind of diversify and become um, more, more dense and how the, the muscle fibers grow or new muscle fibers develop or more neuromuscular connections like all of that intelligence in my body is, I don't need to intellectually understand it, mm -hmm. but, but I do need to learn to discern how to engage my body so that the intelligence and the kind of code that's all in there can express itself. Mm. That's true for me across the board in our, in our whole human system. It's like my job is not to, I don't need to understand the, the, the brain. I don't need to understand the different parts and what they do. Fine. If you want to learn about that stuff, great. But what we do need to learn how to do is how to be with and engage with life so that the intelligence that's embedded in all of that can express itself. And, and, yeah. and in that way, healing, you know, people will disagree with me, but healing is not something we need to try to do. We're built to do that. Like, mm. We are built to heal on every level possible. Our mm. job is to be and, and move in our system in a way that, that enables that underlying intelligence of, of how to heal. And then I mm. think too often it's like, I had this example where you, you cut yourself, your body knows what to do. Yep. You don't really know what to do, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't cover it or make sure that it's, it's sanitary so that it doesn't get infected. Like there's ways we can help the system, but the actual healing itself is happening mm. on its own. So then how mm. do we, in a context of, of psychological or emotional difficulty or pain or trauma, how do we learn to get in sync with the natural capacity of the system to heal? And, and you know, mm -hmm. we're learning more and more research is kind of reflecting what's needed, uh, but you know, people and systems are slow to change. And so our approach to mental illness and, and healing of trauma for me is still way behind um, what would be sort of an optimal approach. Yeah, I think, I think uh, uh, again, I think it's, it's a matter of what's, what's more visible and what's not. Emotional health, um, after or emotional healing after, after some kind of like emotional cut, if you want to look at it that way, it, it's not obvious. It's not obvious that how we're healing. And you look at a cut and you're like, okay, the body's doing its thing. It's easy to trust because you've seen it happen often enough. You're like, okay, well, this is working out. You know, I'm not going to bleed to death. This mm -hmm. thing is not getting infected. And of course we learn how to support that uh, best emotionally. Yeah, of course there's, there's a lot more research that's being done and it gives us a sense of what's making it easier to heal, what's making it harder. For example, um, uh, have you heard of the ACE test or the ACE score, adverse child effects or experiences? experiences. Yeah. yeah. And, there's, and so, so, of course, that's, that gets in the way because these experiences actually create a, create a particular uh, 
uh, how would I call that, um, a particular template for, for the body to sort of go back to, which is not a healed, which is not a, a, a sort of fully healthy system. And so at the same time, when you speak of the intelligence, what to me, what that means is just, is just the fact that we're adaptive. The fact that we're adaptive at a biological level, but also at multiple level beyond that, beyond just the basic biology of us, the fact that we're adaptive allows us to naturally go back to a baseline when it's, when it's more effective and when it's more optimal than the one that we had before. It might take a while to integrate what we learn in order to make that a more optimal uh, position in our life, so to speak. But, it, but it's... I, but so the intelligence is not the intelligence towards being healed. The intelligence is toward, or the adaptiveness is towards a better place or a place that's more, that has better survival chances than we had before. It's more effective. It's more, and I actually, I want to bring it back to, uh, to, um, oh, why are we bringing it back to, uh, there, there's a sense of, uh, we don't need to know the truth. We don't have to need a model that knows the truth. We need a model and we need a sense of reality that is more fit than the model reality that we had before. So, I, so my experience is when we are in a, in a level of healing, whether it's emotional or physical, is that the way our body or the way our mind or the way our heart engages with reality is actually more fit than the way it used to. Mm-hmm. That's what the intelligence drives us to. Yeah, yeah and, and for me, the doorway there is because the way I interpret what you said is that we don't need to understand the truth. That's right. And, and yet, you know, I've, I've had lots of these conversations around objective truth. There's a lot of people that, that, that don't easily or aren't interested in entertaining the idea of objective truth, that all of reality is subjective and it's just what you see and what I see from our perspectives. And that's the whole story. And for me, that, that falls well short of my ability to, to, to kind of connect the dots as we started with, like, for all of this complexity to really work the way it does and make sense, there has to be an underlying holder of, of all of that, an informer of all of that. God, chi, life force, you know, whatever words you want to use to describe it. But something is informing how this unimaginably intricate reality dances in such beautiful synchrony, mm-hmm. synchronicity. And so it's, to me, the, the, I don't need to understand the truth. But there's a funny, there's a bunch of stuff that, that I find really interesting, like in sports, which I was involved in high performance sports for a number of years. And, and there's all this research that says athletes that believe in God do better statistically than athletes that don't. Nice. And then I was just watching, uh, you know, beach volleyball, which was the sport I played and coached. Um, and I watched this athlete. They just won the, the world tour championships. And he went back to serve and he pulled the chain with the cross on it and he kissed it. And then he put it under his jersey. And what I saw in him was he relaxed. Yeah. Like something is holding this moment. Yeah. I don't need to do it all. Yeah. I can just do my part. And then, and so someone who believes that it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Buddhist or an atheist that believes in some kind of like deeper intelligence to the universe. Yeah. But when you know that something is holding it all and you are just there to play your part, you get to relax in your part. Mm, and and yep. there's so much evidence that when we are relaxed in, in relationship to what we're doing in life, everything is better. Like, and I mean, in, in some kind of objective way, like 
this woman, Kelly McGonigal, who did all this research around stress, said the most influential factor as to whether stress is toxic to us or not is whether we believe it's toxic to us or not. <laughs> That's so good. Right? And so, so this is just the, 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 the underlying truth and intelligence of reality just going, hey, humans, like, wake up. You know? And, and so, so to me, it's like, okay, there, there, there has to be something that, that is allowing things to really work. And we have this amazing capacity. You talked a little bit before. It sounded like you're talking about sort of like two sides of the same coin. We have this ability, this adaptive ability to be something we aren't yet. Mm -hmm. And we can do that in a way that's real, which is like an, an advancement of evolution, or we can distort in a way that's not real and create all of this separation from the real intelligence of life. And that when we do that, it is toxic to us. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and then if, if we talk about the kind of inside out communication and relationship, if I create all this distortion in me, that now becomes my vehicle to try to relate to others and to the world. And so I'm using a distorted vehicle to try to make my way. And what am I going to find? Well, it's going to be really painful and disconnected and I'm going to feel like it's, it's not worth it. Yeah. So I actually wanted, yeah. to bring, I wanted to bring it back to something. You can, you can do your piece if you want, but yeah. I love about what I, I read. Like I know you're active online and you write quite a bit. And, and you're, you're saying things that for some people are, in, it's inflammatory, right? Like they react, they don't like it. You're, you're, you're pushing edges, which I love. And, and, and all the while, what I hear you inviting is connection. Mm -hmm. It's like, we, let's dialogue, but not to prove who's right. That, that, that's that's a, a fool's errand to, to, to navigate life as if you being right is the point. But that mm -hmm. it's actually through a meaningful connection with each other where real growth and change can happen. And so yeah. I just wanted you, if you wanted to speak about, cause I know that you are willing to do that. And, and I know that it's not comfortable sometimes to, to oh, it's, live in that way. I mean, it's not, it's not for me. It's not for them. And, and guess what? That's what exercising looks like. That's, that's, that's the sort of pushing edges to, to, to find yet a more optimal perspective or stance or or model of the world and I think I, and, and I think what I see in our conversation which is really exciting to me because I've never seen it this way exactly is what's the what's a what's an evolving what's a hmm, what's an adaptively evolving uh, dynamic um, I don't know if moral framework like a meta moral framework or a meta framework for engaging with reality where, where it's not too little, it's not too much. It's just right. And it's a, it's a form of like lightly holding reality without squeezing too hard and what you had your hand being wide open. There's like a lightly holding of what's happening that allows, that allows us to, to move and to push and to go back to something and not, and not, and not lose our sense of self, but also not get stuck in it. And I think that to, and to me, a lot of what I post is about as I make sense of reality, I share it and then people get the reactions that they do. I, and, and I, and, and that's an expression of love. And what's interesting is that it often feels like very critical because I look at reality in a, with a critical eye, but the problem is that people think critical means bad. Mm -hmm. Critical means like, there's a lot, like I look at it with everything I've got 
and I try to make sense of it with everything I know. And, and out of that is whatever I say. And, and the result is people are having a reaction. And I give them full freedom to have, the, to have their reaction and be responsible for it. And I love whatever reaction they're having. And the result of that is that they get to experience that reaction and be accepted for it and be more, be more free. There's nothing more exciting to me than somebody who comes, sometimes somebody comes to me and say, I've been, I've been watching and reading your stuff for years. I had to unfollow you for a while because you're posting too much. I had to block you for a while because it was too much. And I hated you for, for two years. And then I went back and I was in a different place and I learned something and you make me think. All of that, I'm like, thank you. Thanks mm. for being in the conversation. Thanks for being in the game. Thanks for playing with me. Mm. And, and thanks, for, thanks for being willing to push your edges because in the end, it's for you. Yeah, yeah I mean, it makes me think of, I, I just recently, um, I have a younger sister and, and we're, we're not close. Uh, there was a time when there was a really lovely connection. I'm quite a bit older than her, but at some point it sort of got shut down and, and we didn't see each other much. And, and I reached out uh, a little while ago to say, hey, like, I'm, I'm going to be in your hood. Let's connect. And, and I got back quite a curt, like sharp, not interested kind of message. Um, but, but up until then, almost all of our interactions were like one word answers to questions. Mm. And this was more. And in a way, I was able to see like, oh, that's so good that I got, I got something like, she gave me something and, and uh, I don't know where the relationship will go. I actually felt quite kind of shocked and then I haven't reached back out. But um, when someone is engaged, even if it appears to be volatile or, or in conflict, I'm not advocating for violence, but, but there is something about when someone is willing to, to move by, by, um, by something that's energetic or emotional, there's opportunity in that. That yeah, is more mutuality. Just completely apathetic or disengaged. Yeah. Well, you, she gave you more mutuality in the direction that you wanted. And so there's a sense of, there's a gift there. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I think for me, I would love to hear, I'm always interested in what I call the active ingredient. So you, you coach, you facilitate workshops and retreats. You're, you're inviting and creating space for people to, to be more, to, to learn, to grow. And, 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 you know, I'm curious for you, that process of, of being the facilitator of, of others' journeys, of others' transformation, of others' realizations, what do you, what would you pull from in terms of like, what does it, like what, what gets someone there or what allows for something that has been invisible to them to all of a sudden become revealed? What, what, what do you, what do you get from that work? Huh. I, I mean, for me, it's all about sovereignty. It's all about, and it started out as consent um, a few years ago because I was really curious about consent because I was, I was seeing a lot of people advocating consent in a very non-consensual way. And I was like, that sounds like non-consensual. Like you want, the, you want something for people, you want something from them, and, and, and you're not willing to give them that same consensuality. And, and, and you know, for me, blame is like a non-consensually assigning responsibility to someone. And I don't think it's going to work. Mm. You know, I ultimately, you want responsibility to be taken, uh, to be taken upon uh, oneself 
uh, fully consensually. Otherwise, it's going to get dropped the first time the, per the other person looks away. And so, so I started diving into that, and I realized that consent and connection and trust are interlinked. And when it's fully, when, when connection leads to trust and trust leads to like a, a deeper sense of, I get to engage authentically, however that shows up for me. And it's, and it, it could be messy and dirty, or it can be really beautiful and perfect, but I get to have that experience and I get to learn within that field. Uh, I, I, I get to learn how to make better choices for myself. And I also get to, to become curious about other people's. And the same thing happened with my son, just asking him, do you want this? Do you want that? What's, when he says no to my kiss or my hug, how do I feel about that? What's my reaction? And that's how, you know, that's how I might change the way I ask him. I say, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I, I get maybe manipulative, but maybe it's just how, because we learn how to ask in a way that, is more or less welcome. So I'll say, uh, can I give you a hug? Or would you like a hug? Or, uh, or, or I'll give you a hug right here if you don't stop me. Or, you know, like we play around with these things. Mm -hmm. But it also supports us in learning about the edges, about the pace, and about the desires, and about the boundaries of the other person, and about how they feel about our engagement. And that's all connection. Yeah. And that kind of, it's so, so it's a so connection is a piece, is a big chunk of it. But in the end, it's about, for me, it's about sovereignty. And so everything that I'm involved in, whether it's coaching, you know, the, the, my, my coaching program is called the path or the journey to sovereignty or the quest of sovereignty, uh, because I see it as a path. There's a, you know, it meanders, it goes around and we get lost and then we find ourselves again. Um, and then the work that I support, which is the work of ISTA, uh, which stands for International School of Temple Arts, and they have three, three different trainings, level one, two, and three. The level one is for everyone, and then after that, you can go to the others. Uh, but it's all about the work of sovereignty. It's about, it's about being responsible for your own experience, your own feelings, and responsible for your own actions, your own yes, your own no. And that's also the work that I teach, the work of consent, the work of somatic intelligence, the work of emotional intelligence, and the work of primal intelligence. How do we engage with these different bodies or intelligences or forms of literacy so that as we're engaging with others, we're engaging in a way that, that is more optimal, that, it, that, that also allows us to not be rid, too rigid and not too flexible. Like we want to find that sweet spot with each other. And I think that's really, that's really the juice that makes us want to be alive. Yeah. Yeah, and it begs a question around, like, can we define what optimal is? And then I think the idea of, of mutual sovereignty is an interesting one because that doesn't include doing what people want you to. No. Like, they're sovereign to want what they want and do what they do, but mm -hmm. you're also sovereign in that way. Then, then there's a meeting and a dance of that, yeah. that mutual sovereignty that, that doesn't have a clear result. And, no. and, and it can be messy and emotions and feelings can be hurt. And, and for me, that's that, like you say, that's the juice. That's where the learning is. That's where the growth is. And, and what's important because it's also not about being careless in it. Yeah. So what's important or about being perfect, where are you coming from and, and what's it really for, not as a concept or an ideology, but like in a deep heart level, Yep. What, what are you living for? And, and are you allowing what you're living for to inform your navigation of these spaces? 
Because mm-hmm. if, if I'm clear, not, not in my mind, but if I'm really clear deep inside what my life is for, and I let that guide me, then again, for me, what that is, is it's me tuning into that deeper intelligence that's there, where mm-hmm. just because something is uncomfortable or painful doesn't mean I'm going to shy away. Just because something feels good doesn't mean I'm going to dive in. I need to be able to discern all of the levels of those sensations and experiences and perceptions to make a good choice. And, and if I have very little awareness, then I'm going to have very little discernment and that's okay. I can just work on the level that I am able to discern. But again, as the levels reveal themselves and as awareness grows, there is so much to be responsible for. And, and to me, that's the, the beauty of, the growth, the interpersonal growth that is, is really the only way, like we're built to learn and grow together. It's yeah. not a solo project. And <laughs> our willingness to, to kind of keep digging and keep un- unveiling and unraveling and to keep becoming more and more responsible as our awareness grows is there's no end point to that. And, and, yeah. and so much beauty and pain and joy and difficulty gets to sprout from that in a way that isn't about us personally. It's like, mm. then our life becomes our gift to the world. That, that is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, a, in a certain way, it's a unidirectional giving. It's like giving without expecting. And of course, all sorts of things rain back to us when we give in that way, but, but we're not doing it. It's not a transaction. And mm. that's the thing Like yeah. I talk a lot about the difference between um, transactional versus relational interaction. Mm. And that those are fundamentally different kinds of relationships. Well, it's definitely relational. It's definitely a higher level. It's, it doesn't end as soon as the transaction is over. You know, it's like it's, it, it's an ecology of transactions, if you want to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. But the, what, one thing you, you were just speaking to, what came up for me is you, you're connecting uh, this whole conversation to purpose. For me, that's, that's, that's the sort of what, what are you here for? And and what's interesting about that, and I'm going to connect it right back to the nervous system, is that when you're on purpose and you realize that everything you do is, is moving you as when you're in alignment with your purpose and that every, everything you do is a form of accomplishing your purpose, you actually get a little shot of dopamine. Yeah. And, and, and I would that's say that's... Important. Important the rightful function of the dopamine system, (laughs) right? We can hijack it and use it for all sorts of other stuff, but what it's really there for is to reinforce what, what fundamental goodness is like what fundamental evolution is. Yeah. 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 That's good. So one of the things that I would like to include in these conversations is an example or, or, or a memory that someone has of a conversation because this, these conversations for change is, is, um, part of my mission and vision in my life. How do we uh, identify what it is about certain conversations that open us up or that really change the trajectory of our life in a profoundly positive way? And, and can we pull threads through so that maybe we can start to have more of these conversations? So is there a conversation in your life that for you just it, it, it opened something or it changed something that, that after that it was all different? Is there anything you can... Uh, share with us. Huh. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm, huh. I mean, it doesn't have to be the one, just if, if any <laughs> come to mind, I'm happy to listen. Well, I, 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 I can name a few things that I feel were, were um, 
sort of the linchpin, like they were like, there's definitely two linchpins, so to speak. There, there's two, and they're not single conversations, unfortunately, because I'm having so many that it just becomes, you know, like an ecology of conversation. I live in a, in a field of conversation. So get, extracting one, I, although it's possible, uh, it's not coming to me. So the two things that come to mind as the greatest source of uh, transformation and growth in my life, um, at least in the, in, well, three, I'm going to name three because another one just came to mind. Uh, my marriage, which is an, it's an open relation, open poly relationship marriage. And it's got, you know, after 15 years, it's gotten more complex every year and the conversations are more complex within it. Um, and it's just so kept me on my edge. Uh, that's one. The second one is uh, parenting. Parenting as is one of the greatest, most trans, transpersonal experiences of my life in the sense that it's not just about me anymore. I've had to extend my sense of self to another human being in a really critical way. And, um, and it's, it's felt like it ha it's had the intensity that you can imagine somebody having it, it relates that relates to an article i read about parenting somebody compared it to becoming a vampire where you die a gruesome painful death and in exchange you gain superhuman strength and a taste for blood and a parenting is kind of like that you're like <laughs> there's a there's a side of you that dies forever and it's painful as all hell but when you when you come out of it and it takes years to come out of it at least it did for me um, I come out of it with such a greater sense of connectedness with the world through my son and through my wife and co-parent and friend and partner as a result, but also knowing that my flesh and blood is out in the world and already my purpose is in action from that. And then the last piece is uh, more recently in the last three years, I think is uh, being connected to that world and that global community with, with a global group, uh, organism of people and co-facilitators and organizers who are all moving in a very similar direction to what I'm moving makes, gives me a sense of purpose um, at a global scale that I've never had before. And so all of these things contribute to each other and are part of my ecology of growth. Uh, and I'm super grateful that they're, they're a part of it. And, you know, and, and, it's, and it includes other people, whether you're in my life as a friend, or you come to one of those Easter trainings, it doesn't matter, or, or show up on one of my threads on my, on my Facebook wall, there, you know, I, I'm here to share, and I'm here to share that purpose and support you in it. Awesome. So uh, it feels like we're kind of winding to some kind of completion. Is there anything else you wanted to share or, or kind of bring up before we part ways for now? Uh, God, I feel like we just covered the whole universe and came back to our bodies. Uh, I, I, if you want to know more what I'm doing, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, if you post this, I imagine you will tag me. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, you can find me on my website, uh, which has most, if not all, I mean, it's a little bit hard to keep, to keep the website up with everything I'm doing, but uh, you can just go to it and I'll give you a, a starting point, which is uh, the website is www.exquisite.love, not .com, .love. Um, and so check it out. Yeah, I'll, so I'll share those links on uh, any of the pieces of this or the whole form of this that I share. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. I enjoyed meeting you this summer. 
And this has been a really sweet conversation. I, I assume that we will cross paths and have more of them. Yeah, I would love that. This was amazing. And I love your mind. And I love, I love, I love my brain cells rubbing, uh, rubbing against your brain, your brain cells, you know, in a form of, uh, you know, our own version of making love with our minds. Yeah, yeah, it's a pleasure. And it's, you know, really what this podcast is about. And, and very central to the work that I do is just opening up these dialogues in a way that that is nourishing and meaningful and that um, hopefully can be shared and, and, and uh, can benefit uh, a broader, a broader cross section of humanity. Beautiful. I love you. Cool, man. Love you too. Wish you the best. Yeah, take care. Yeah, you too.